Uh, you probably already know this, but Christmas is the most celebrated uh, holiday in all the world. I mean, it's first place and first place by far. Um, every year this time of year, every December, billions and billions of people all over the world from nations uh, all over the world, uh, they in unison begin to celebrate the most celebrated birth in all of history, which is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it's real easy for us in the 21st century, and it's real easy for us, you know, here in the West and so far removed from that first Christmas, it's easy for us to lose sight of just how extraordinary of a fact that this month the entire world will celebrate the birthday of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, there's not another figure in history whose birth and whose life has captured uh, as much attention. Uh, there's been more songs written about him, there's been more books written about him, there's been more speeches given about him than any other figure in the history of the world. And this month, billions of people uh, billions of people will come together in agreement. I mean, imagine that in our world, anybody agreeing with any number of people, but billions of people will get together in agreement that Jesus' birth is worthy of celebration, that his life is worthy of celebration. And that's, that's pretty astounding, even more so when you consider that he was just merely a son of a carpenter from a backwater province called Palestine on the edge of the Roman Empire near the Mediterranean. Uh, Jesus wasn't born into the philosophical elite of Athens uh, to which you and I, had we been God and we sent our son into the world, perhaps we would have sent him there. Uh, he wasn't born into the political nobility of Rome or you know, among the academia of Alexandria. Uh, he was born into poverty. Uh, Jesus was born to an unwed teenage mother. Uh, he never received, uh, as far as we know, uh, he never received any formal education, never traveled more than 100 or so miles from the place where he lived. He never held political office. He never led an army. Um, his life was basically not all that special, if you judge it by the ways that many people judge You know, the beginning of a great story. He was homeless. Uh, Jesus said, hey, even the birds have nests and foxes have holes, but I, I really don't have any place. So he was homeless. He was forsaken in the end by his friends, and he died as an enemy of the state and of his church. Yet in just a few days, all over the world, billions of people are going to celebrate the birth of a Jewish carpenter. They're gonna celebrate the birth of a Jewish baby when most of the people celebrating Christmas are not even Jewish. Now that's something just to think about. And that's completely free, all right? Uh, now, we're in week two of our series called Carols, and we've been talking about how the story of Christmas itself, it begins with promise. And, and I hope that you're able to say this as good as I can say it, or better than I can say it, quicker than I can say it, because that means I'm doing my job. The story of Christmas begins with a promise, a promise that God made to Abraham that one day he would father a nation, he would father a family, he would father a kingdom. He would father a family, he would father a nation, he would father a kingdom. And out of that family and out of that nation and out of that kingdom, God was gonna enact a plan to save the world. And that was the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, in the generations to follow, there would be the arrival of Jewish prophets, people like Isaiah and people like Jeremiah, people like Malachi or Micah. Uh, Jewish prophets would show up and they would declare that in Israel's future, because Abraham did father a family and that family did become a nation, it became the nation of Israel, God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. But the prophets would show up and say, sometime in the future, Israel is gonna become a light 
not only to those living within the land of Israel, but Israel itself is going to be a light to all the nations of the world. Uh, the Jewish prophets, seemingly, they showed up in their era of time when they occupied their, their moment of history, and they looked into the future, and they said, you know what, there's coming a day when a light will shine from within Israel that will penetrate the darkness of this world, a darkness that fell because of sin. And this light that would shine from within Israel would be a light that the darkness would not be able to overcome. The darkness would not be able to withstand it. And so there's gonna be a light, and this light is gonna shine from Israel, and it's gonna shine to all the nations of the world, and the nations of the world are gonna be attracted to this light. They're gonna come to this light. And so the prophets, they reiterated this, this message over and over again in different ways, and it was their way of offering a rebellious, stubborn hope to the people of Israel. Because to believe this was to, was to not really pay attention to their circumstances. To believe this was to ignore a bit of their personal experience with life. Uh, to believe this was to, at times, neglect what had been true about their own history. But they hoped against hope, and they placed their faith on the promises of God. The prophets would go on to say that this light... This light that would shine from within Israel. It would come out of the tribe of Judah. It, it would come from the line of Jesse, from out of the house of David. And that this light would first begin in Bethlehem as a baby would be born to a virgin. And so that's kind of the Old Testament. It's pretty exciting. And, and that's the big storyline. Uh, and it reminds us that when God makes a promise, all reality... All reality, all time, space, and matter begins moving in the direction of God's promise in order to bring the promise into reality. And that's what we can see on this side of Christmas in the Old Testament that those in the Old Testament could not see as it was happening in real time. Sometimes you can't see what God is doing until after God has already done it. And so we have the privilege of looking back and so 2,000 years or so after Christmas, we look back to the Old Testament and it's like, okay, it's obvious to us. It's clear to us. But for the folks living in real time, it was not easy to believe and it was not easy to hold on to hope. But that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's about a people of stubborn faith and hope who believed that God would keep his promise. And so that's Genesis 3, that's Genesis 12. And the rest of the Old Testament is history moving in the direction of Christmas. If you want to know a summary, a one-sentence summary for the Old Testament, it's history moving in the direction of Christmas. That's what's happening. So I've saved you a whole lot of reading uh, in the Old Testament, but I would suggest that you still read it for yourself. But the Old Testament is history itself. It's moving in the direction of Christmas because God has promised Christmas. And then when you open up the New Testament, when you open up the New Testament, uh, the central claim, the central assumption is, the idea is God has done something. God has done something, and specifically, God has kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has kept his promise to David. God has kept the promise. The descendants of Abraham, his family, became a nation. They have become a kingdom. And out of that kingdom, there has come a king. And out of that kingdom, there has come a kingdom that is going to change the world forever. And so when you open up the New Testament, it's like all the writers are basically in agreement saying, that promise that you traced all throughout the Old Testament has been fulfilled in and through Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. And so you open up to the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew, he, he makes his case like this. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he just lists about a page and a half of begats, begats. There's a whole lot of begatting going on for a whole lot of begatting years. And so, you know, everybody's hooking up, they're having babies, they're hooking up and having babies, hooking up and having babies. And Matthew writes it all down. And, and usually, you know, when we tried to read through the Bible, you remember those times when we tried to read through the Bible? We got to Matthew 1 and 1, and then we got to like, okay, this is what's going to be for like the next 72 verse. Okay, I'm going on to chapter 2. Matthew puts this in here for a reason, because out of the gate, he makes a case that Jesus is the heir to the promise, to David and to Abraham. And it seems benign, but it's not. It, it just seems like something somebody is writing, but it's so much more than that because it's part of a grander story. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the biographer, the doctor, uh, he begins his biography in a manner which I think feels like an appropriate ending to the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he writes about so much Jewish imagery and Jewish poetry and, and the, the rhythm of how Luke writes in chapters one and two, it just feels, it feels like an Old Testament continuation. It feels like the climax that the Old Testament was looking for, except the Old Testament ended in search of an ending. Uh, the Old Testament just kind of ends out there and, and the promise is not fulfilled and nobody's really for sure what, you know, what's going to happen to Israel. You know, they're under the domination of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, but oh my goodness, here comes Alexander and the Greeks and after that, the Romans and nobody knows what's about to happen. But, but Luke opens up his gospel and it's as if he channels Old Testament literature in, in his writing, and it's, it's the ending that the Old Testament was looking for all along. And, and you find him making his case. After, after Mary was uh, visited by the angel Gabriel, and, and he said, you're gonna have a son, even though you're a virgin, you're gonna be, you know, the Holy Spirit's gonna overshadow you so that the baby born to you is gonna be holy, and he's gonna be called the son of God. And then Mary sings a song, or you know, she writes a piece of poetry, and, and this is what Mary says. He, God, has helped his servant Israel. Well, that's obviously a continuation of the Old Testament narrative. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham. And there it is again, an echo of this storyline that's been handed down from generation after generation. And his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And so even Mary, Mary represents that what she is a part of in real time, that it's actually a continuation of a story that is thousands of years into itself. And that this story that she finds herself at the epicenter of, this is somehow connected to the promise that God made a long time ago. Uh, Zachariah, the father of John the baptizer, the husband of Elizabeth, who we talked about, was also visited by Gabriel. And they were to have a child in their old age. And he was going to be the forerunner, uh, the precursor to the Messiah the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, Zechariah, he said this, he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Israel. And again, this is obviously, you know, we have to understand the Old Testament to understand the significance of all of this because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has visited them. So Zechariah in some way understood that God is visiting his people in all of this. this. This is an unfolding drama of God visiting his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And again, echoes, ripples of Old Testament prophecy and imagery coming to bear in the opening pages of the New Testament. Jesus is born. 
Uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. And there's an old guy there by the name of Simeon. And Simeon has been waiting his whole life like those watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn of the morning. Psalms 130, verses 5 and 6. And he's been waiting on the wall, waiting for the dawn of the morning. And when Mary and Joseph bring their little infant child, Jesus, to the temple, Simeon grabs the child, takes the child. And, and this is what he says. He says, for my eyes, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, my kids were just as cute as yours when yours were born, but there wasn't a single solitary person who held my sons and said, behold, the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> no, and they didn't with your child either. This is not normal. This is not what people say when, when they hold a baby. Behold, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's people who are non-Jewish, that God has showed up in some way to reveal himself, not only to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just not to the people who believe in the laws of Moses and the first five books of the Old Testament, not just to God's chosen people, but to God's world, to God's earth, to the nations of the world. God has revealed himself by sending a light into the darkness and the glory of your people, Israel. So that's how the New Testament begins, and, and it's the echo of Old Testament prophecies that are coming to bear, that are coming into fulfillment. Uh, these are the very moments when the watchmen on the wall, they're seeing the dawn begin to break through. And the New Testament, the New Testament, the writers, and this is, this is so important because this is one of the things I'm really passionate about. And I think all of our faith would be a lot stronger if we could begin to think in terms of narrative in terms of scripture rather than just books of the Bible. You know, what does that book of the Bible say? Or, you know, what does that part of the Bible say? If we would start th stop thinking about the parts of the Bible and we start thinking think about the point the Bible's making and, and we, we don't get lost down in the books of the Bible, but we get in inundated with the narrative of scripture, the overarching story that the scriptures tell. It's so compelling, it's so overwhelming, it's so convincing, and it really does cause faith just to come, come alive inside of our hearts. The New Testament all agrees, the New Testament writers are in complete agreement that the arrival of Jesus somehow marked the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Luke, who writes about it in a way that all of us have heard before, but I, I want you just to, to tune in for just a moment. And I think you'll be glad that you did because the implications of Christmas are vast and they are profound and they are consequential for you, for me, for us, and for the nations of the world. Listen to how Luke begins it. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus. Everybody say Caesar Augustus. Now, you probably don't remember two things that you studied about Caesar Augustus from school. Maybe the Pax Romana, maybe. Maybe, just maybe. But that may be about it. Uh, some of you are like, Caesar who? Uh, you know, who is that? Uh, and this is Luke's way, being a doctor and being left brain linear type of thinker. This, this is Luke's way of anchoring the story of Christmas into history. And I always appreciate that because it's not, you know, once upon a time in a land far, far away type of thing. Let me tell you this story. No, he says, let me begin with a figure of history that everybody in the first century would have recognized. Everybody in the second century would have recognized. The third century would 
would have recognized. But over here, you know, in our 21st century West, you know, we don't pay so much attention to first century Caesars uh, as much as some people in history have. But his, he, he was born Octavian. Uh, he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Now, it's like, okay, there's a name from history we remember, Julius Caesar. Uh, and so he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, and Julius loved his nephew Octavian, just loved the kid, just absolutely loved him, gave him gifts, wanted to spend time with him, and he just thought he was like the greatest, the greatest kid ever. Octavian grew into quite a soldier, into quite a leader, and Octavian loved his uncle just as much as his uncle loved him. And so there was a period of time when Julius was fighting a war uh, in Spain. It was called the Conquest of Spain. And so while he's fighting, Octavian wanted to be there at his uncle's side in order to fight beside of him. So he endured a shipwreck and he crossed an entire country that was full of the enemy, all so that he could be beside of his uncle Julius to fight in battle with him. Well, when Octavian showed up and Julius looked at him, it, it, just, it just did something in his heart. He, he was convinced, okay, this, this, this guy is the guy. This guy is the guy. And, and after that event, uh, he wrote Octavian into his will as his successor and as his heir, as the next Caesar. Now, um, in 44 uh, BC, March, uh, 44 BC, uh, Julius Caesar is assassinated, you know, all of that. The Roman Senate conspired against him, or a few of them did, and so Julius Caesar dies, and Octavian is fighting another war in Albania, and that's when the word comes to him, your uncle Caesar is dead, but... They have read his will, and congratulations, you are his heir and successor. So he finds out, and then he comes back to Rome, and he takes the title Octavian Caesar. And not only that, but he's going to become the Caesar, which essentially doubles the size of the empire. He's going to transition the, the Roman Republic to an empire itself. Uh, in 42 BC, a couple of years after Julius Caesar was assassinated, the Roman Senate, uh, they decided to declare him a god, because that's what you do when you're a senator. Uh, and one year you kill somebody, the next year you declare him a god. Uh, it just happens. It's like, okay, we can, we can understand that with our dysfunctional political system. And, and so uh, they killed him in 44, they made him a god in 42. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, I suppose, you know, from the way they're thinking. We may have killed you, Julius, but we did make you a god. So what do you think about that? So they, they called him the divine Julius, which made Octavian the son of the divine Julius or the son of a god. Now, that's, that's very important because Luke, Luke is, he, he's writing with, with a bit of, of subterfuge about him. He, he's writing subversively a bit in his narrative because the, the historical context is really important for us to understand a little bit of the jab that Luke is giving towards the Caesar uh, in Rome, Octavian. And in 27 BC, uh, which is, you know, three or four decades before at least Luke is going to have this content to write about. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate declared Octavian. They gave him the title Augustus, which shows up in the text, and it means holy one. It means majestic one. It means savior of the world. So in the days when the savior of the world was sitting on the throne, in Rome, in the days when the holy majestic one, you know, a little bit of tongue in cheek, was sitting on the throne in Rome. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So he, he begins by introducing us to a leader who initiated tax reform. I mean, how interesting can that be? But here, here's a leader who said, okay, we need tax reform. And instead of taxing communities in the empire, I'm gonna tax individuals. 
And because I'm taxing individuals, they're gonna have to go to particular tax stations in order to register, in order to know who's there. And we're gonna have to count the people in order to tax the people. And, and so Caesar Augustus, Octavian, makes a decision that just seems to be just normal geopo you know, geopolitical politics and economics. Uh, it just seems to be like, you know, okay, this is what leaders do. This is what Caesars do. This is what rulers on this planet, this is what they do. But it's more than Caesar deciding that he wants to raise the tax revenue for the empire. This is God at work. This is God pulling strings. This is God, you know, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water and he turns the waters wherever he wishes. And if that's true, and us Christians believe that it is, that the heart of leaders are in the hands of God and God turns the heart of leaders like water as much as he wants to, as often as he wants to. And if that's true, then why would we ever be a people who freak out about what the people in power are doing? Why would we be the people who are freaking out about what's happening in Washington or what's not happening in Washington or who's getting elected or who's not or who's declared candidacy and oh my gosh, what's gonna happen and oh my goodness. You know, yeah, we're involved in the process. We can be a voice in the process. But at the end of the day, we don't freak out about it because we know when push comes to shove, God is the one in control. And so we don't sweat, you know, what happens between nation states. We don't worry about wars and rumors of wars and economic meltdowns and all of those things because we believe as Christians that God himself is the author of history, that God is in control, that he weaves somehow beyond my ability to communicate how he does it, but he weaves your choices and my choices and the choices of all of humanity into his eternal purposes and into his eternal will and what seems accidental or incidental or out of our control. Ultimately, it's not accidental, it's not incidental, and it's under God's purview. It's under God's control. And so here's Octavian. What a guy. I mean, he's a fascinating guy, one of the greatest leaders in all of history. But here's Octavian, who doesn't know a flipping thing about the Jewish scriptures, doesn't know anything most likely about the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's 1,500 miles away from Palestine in Rome. He has no idea about any of that stuff, but one day he has an idea, and he's thinking, we need to tax individuals. And he thinks he's a genius. He thinks it's amazing what he's come up with. He tells his advisors. And then he's like, hey guys, what do you think about this idea? And when you're Octavian and you're Caesar and you ask anybody about your idea, it's always the best idea they've ever heard. I mean, this, this is a great idea. You should do that. But yet, the most powerful man in the world is nothing but a pawn of providence. And that the king really of the earth, Caesar Augustus is making a way for a king, the final king, Amen. a baby king, Amen. a king by the name of Jesus. Luke says this was the first census that was taken uh, while Serenius was governor of Syria and everybody went to their own town to register. And, and so this kind of throws in, throws things into, you know, a series of events that is gonna take us to Christmas. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and to the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So again, Luke's a masterful storyteller. What seems benign maybe in the moment to most people, what seemed like just another act of taxation or oppression or injustice in the eyes of most people that it was happening to in real time, is so much more than that. Mary and Joseph, maybe more than anybody else in history in this moment, they are literally walking in the direction of God's promise. God has promised that when this child comes, 
He will be a descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. He'll come from the tribe of Judah, the house of David. Be born in Bethlehem. Where's where's Joseph on his way to? Where's Mary on her way to? To Bethlehem. Everything's gonna happen exactly the way God said it was gonna happen. And they're walking in the direction of promises. While they were there, while they were there, the time came. The appointed time came. The perfect time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And this was the moment that all of history had been waiting on. This is the moments that the prophets had been pointing to generation after generation, century after century. For thousands of years, again, Israel had been standing upon that wall, a few remnant of faith and hope, like watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn of the day to come. And that night in Bethlehem, the time came for the dawn to break through. Now, when the gospels write about this, they write about it in a lot of different ways. And Luke just kind of gives us the straightforward, you know, just, you know, the historical facts of it. While they were there, the time came. And that seems practical and that seems concrete, but, the, but there's so much in that. It's so loaded with meaning. Matthew said this was the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. That the gospel writers, they understood that this was more than the birth of a child. This, this was somehow a visitation, as Zechariah would say, a visitation of God that God had visited his people. Or as Philip Yancey would say, that the master architect of all the world had, had painted this incredible piece of art, this incredible masterpiece, and then he stepped into it himself. That this is the moment that Mary said that this is God remembering his promise. Or the gospel writer John, who was a fisherman from Galilee, described it this way. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were made. And it's an unmistakable, it's an unmistakable echo of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so John, in John 1, verse 1, he takes a thread and he goes all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 1, and he ties a knot on each. And in his narrative, he is going to pull these two realities together in the next few lines to let us know that in the beginning, in a time before time, before there was time, space, and matter, through him all things were made. And there was nothing that's been made that was made apart from him. And in him was life. In the one that created the heavens and the earth, in him was life, and that light, that life became the light of all mankind. And that light has shone into the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. And then he says, and this word, this logos, the eternal logos, the creator God logos, which stepped into the chaos of Genesis 1-1 and brought order to the chaos, who ordered the heavens and the earth and set in motion the, the plan and the process of creation to bring about the reality that we all know as the world that we live in today. He says that word became flesh, became a man and dwelt among us. John goes back to the beginning of beginnings and he ties, he ties a knot around Genesis 1.1 and he ties a knot around what he's saying in his gospel and he brings the two together and he says, okay, before time, space and matter existed, there was only an eternal, transcendent, personal God. That's all that existed. An eternal entity, a spirit God, who was outside of time, outside of space, who was immaterial, he is spirit. 
And that God, that God alone is responsible for all the created order of the cosmos, for all that you see on this earth, that he is the architect of it all. And that creator God, according to John, was the one that was born in Bethlehem that evening that Mary wrapped in clothes. And it's like, what? Are you kidding me? The God who called Abraham out of Ur was born in Bethlehem? The God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush was the God who was born in Bethlehem. The God who dwelt among his people in a fire by night and a cloud by day was the God that was born in Bethlehem. The God who parted the river Jordan for Joshua and Caleb and the nation of Israel to cross into the land of promise, that God was born in Bethlehem that night. The God who made the sun to stand still was born in Bethlehem that night. The one who brought down the walls of Jericho was the God that was born that night. His cry, the cry of an infant that was so much more than an infant, who was the incarnation of God himself, that God cried in the cold, dark hills of Judea, born in Bethlehem. John's point is that Jesus, the beginning of his story, it does not begin in Bethlehem. The beginning of the story of Jesus begins in eternity because God entered into time and space in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why Christians, hey, I'll I'll be the first one to tell you, there's no way to dumb it down. We believe some wild things. We believe believe some unreasonable things. We, We believe some things that require absolute faith. We believe that Jesus was not only completely human, we believe that Jesus in some ways was completely God. How do you even go about describing that? Not half man, not half God, but completely both. A complete man, complete God. God incarnated into flesh. The word became flesh. We beheld his glory. It's like, wow. No wonder Jesus said things like this. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. No wonder Jesus could say to a group of Pharisees that hated his guts one day, hey, you love Abraham, but I want you to know, guys, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus says these things that we have record of in the Gospels, and it's, it's, it's Christmas that begins to shed light on that. That the eternal God that existed before Genesis 1 and 1 begins to tell us the story of how we got here and the story of where we're going. The eternal God in Bethlehem entered into time. The finite was entered into by the infinite. The untouchable God became touchable. The unbreakable God became fragile. And the spirit God became matter. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger. That's an amazing story. What does it mean? Well, the incarnation is the part of the story that makes sense of the rest of the story. It's the part of the story that makes sense of the rest of the story. How, How else would we be able to interpret the rest of the story? Christmas is so intertwined with everything we read about Jesus, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, who Jesus was. The fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, you can't divorce that apart from Christmas. 
The fact that we believe that Jesus was sinless, yet he died for sinners, you can't, you can't divorce that apart from Christmas because it's only the virgin birth which makes sense of a sinless savior. The fact that Jesus was killed and buried but raised from the dead, that he sits right now at the right hand of God as our great high priest and that one day he's coming back to fully manifest the kingdom of God here on this earth. The only way to make sense of that is to read out of the narrative of what we read at Christmas. Christmas prepares us for everything else that we're gonna see in Jesus's life. It's Christmas that helps us understand why Easter is possible. It's Easter that helps us understand why Christmas is necessary. You, you can't divorce one part of this from the other because collectively it tells the story of who Jesus is and why he came. And what a story it is. But here's the thing, it's either true or it's not. There's no middle ground. It's either true or it's not. It either happened or it didn't. The New Testament is either fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a coming savior and king or it's a figment of somebody's genius imagination. That's all there is. It either happened or it didn't. And when it comes to the Christmas story, I promise you, there's only two options. It's either completely meaningless or infinitely meaningful. That's all there is. And if we wanna think for just a moment, if we wanna think for just a moment, the Christmas story, if it's not true, if portions of it are not true, then the whole thing just becomes completely meaningless. Completely meaningless. Yeah, sure, it's a great piece of literature. Sure, it's a great piece of history that's been passed down from antiquity. But any transcendent way, it's completely meaningless. Or it's infinitely meaningful. And for people of faith, it's infinitely meaningful. It's infinitely meaningful because we believe that it's anchored to history. We believe that these events happen. And the Christmas story, what makes it so incredibly meaningful is it brings us front and center with the reality of God. And the New Testament begins exactly the way the Old Testament begins with this assumption of the existence of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, in the beginning was the word, John 1. Matthew 1, Luke 1. Mark 1, all begins with this assumption that, that God exists. And if God exists, then anything's possible. That's the, that's the only rational conclusion. If God exists, anything's possible. If God doesn't exist, then nothing matters. If God doesn't exist, we're just accidents who are making up illusions as we go. If God doesn't exist, there's no ordering principle to anything in the world. There's no such thing as truth if God doesn't exist. There's no such thing as objective, right and wrong if God doesn't exist. There's no such thing as meaning or value or purpose in life or with life if God doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, if God is not a reality, everything I promise you is meaningless. There's no rational explanation beyond that. If God doesn't exist, we're accidents in a universe that's destined to die, being individuals that are destined to die, in a universe that didn't even care that we were here to begin with, with nothing that happens afterward. Which is why we should be a people of peace and joy and love and hope because we understand the story that God is telling and it's infinitely meaningful. It brings us face to face with the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I agree with C.S. Lewis. The answer, he's either lunatic, he's either liar or he's Lord. That's all there is to it. The Christmas story causes every single person to wrestle with, or it should cause us to wrestle with, who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? If Jesus claims to be God and he's not, he's either lying or he's crazy. 
Jesus said, Father, glorify me with the glory that we had together before the world began. He's either lying or he's delusional. If he's not a lunatic or God, then he's just a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a master manipulator. He's got some grander plan, some devious malevolent plan in mind or in his heart. If he's neither lunatic or liar, if he's not crazy and there's no evidence that he's lying, then perhaps he's Lord, he's God. And for those who struggle to believe it, it's like, okay, you have to ask yourself, was Jesus a master manipulator? Is that who he was? And, and did his message even benefit himself? Because that's usually what master manipulators do. They, they tell a message, they create a system that benefits them. Jesus was the victim of his own teaching. Was he mentally unwell or was he the revelation of God in human skin? Was he the one who came to pull back the curtain to show us what God is truly like? The, the zenith of the gospels is the resurrection. The Christmas is just kind of the opening act, but it's the resurrection which is the zenith of the story where the gospel writers are trying to get to. And it's Easter which is always gonna be connected to Christmas in some way, and Christmas which is always gonna be connected to Easter in some way, and we understand the other by looking at the opposite. We understand Easter because we understand something about Christmas and we can look at Christmas with different eyes because we understand what happened at Easter. And we understand that the central event of the Christian experience is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, that was God's sign to the world, beyond being born to a virgin. God's ultimate sign to the world that Jesus was his son, that Jesus was God in flesh, was the fact that he was buried and he was raised from the dead. That was God saying, don't miss him. Don't ignore him. Don't neglect him. If he is who he says he is, it is immensely profound in its implications of what it means for you and what it means for me and what it means for us. If Christmas is true, do you ever stop and think what it really means for you, what it means for us, what it means for the world? If Easter is true and the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive, have you stopped and thought about it recently, how significant, how meaningful it is to believe what we believe, that God visited us in order to redeem us and in order to prove that he was who he was and that what he did, it mattered. He raised his son from the dead so that we would never be a people without hope. I mean, it's incredible just to think about. And Peter, this is where I, this is where I wrap it up. Peter, Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, he kind of, he kind of captures this whole idea of, of this grand story that God is telling. And he captures it in a letter that he wrote to Christians. And this is what he says. He says, praise be to the God and Father. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A couple of things to think about real quick. Peter believed that Jesus' father was God. Okay. Have you ever met anybody that you was remotely suspicious that their father was God? No. Who would say such a thing? Peter thinks back on all of his denying and running from God and hiding and all of that stuff and he remembers Jesus, how he spoke to him, how he looked at him and that Jesus never looked at him like a failure and he thinks about that mercy and he thinks about how it's connected to the resurrection, that he got a brand new beginning and he says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoiler fade, this inheritance is kept for you in the heavens, that you have inherited all the promises of God through Jesus. And not only the promises of God on what has happened and what is happening, but the new world that God has promised to remake, the new world to come, you are gonna inherit that promise as well. 
He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. He says, there's gonna be suffering in this world. And then he says this, and he brings it all together. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. He says, okay, Christians, don't miss this. You are part of such a large story that spans from Genesis through the New Testament. And you can trace God's promises through the generations. And now you have this privilege on the other side of Christmas, on the other side of Easter, on the other side of the cross, you have this incredible privilege to go back and trace God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness through the ages. And you see how God ultimately proved himself faithful to men and to women like you who struggled sometimes to believe like you, who were prone to doubt sometimes like you are and like I am, who in the darkness of this world struggled sometimes to focus on the glimmer of light, who struggled to hold on to hope even when there seemed to be no good reason to hope. He says, you are in a position where you can go back and you can trace this entire narrative and know that God can be trusted that Jesus has showed up into this world to show us what God is like. And let me say this, and I end it right now. Jesus presented a version of God to the world whose greatness was only rivaled by his goodness. That's what happens at Easter. That's what happens through the gospels. That's, that's what we are reminded of at the resurrection that we can trust and we can put our faith in what we see Jesus doing and what we hear Jesus saying in the gospels because Jesus introduced to the world a God whose greatness is only rivaled by his goodness. That Jesus shows up and reminds us that we serve a God who's the God of the impossible. That he is the God who's responsible for the cosmos that all the hundreds of millions of galaxies and all the billions of stars within those galaxies and all the oceans and all the lands and all the mountains and all the DNA, all of it is the design of his heart and the design of his mind. He's such a great God, he couldn't be seen in the Old Testament. He was so holy, he couldn't be touched. He was so powerful, he couldn't be contained. He knows all things and controls all things and before all things, and he's infinite in every way. He's impossible for a finite mind to comprehend because he's infinite in every single way. He's greater than what you could ever imagine him to be. But yet Jesus shows us the greatness of God is only rivaled by the goodness of God. His love, his mercy, his grace, his attention to us. A God who's always working in the dark places to bring light. The God who's always bringing beauty out of the ashes and turning bad things good. Jesus introduces us to a God who's bigger and better than what we've ever imagined. And I think we should think about it more. That's all. I think we should think about it more. Because if it's truly true, the one thing that it isn't, it's not inconsequential. If God is God and he revealed himself through his son and if Jesus said what he said and did what he did and he was raised from the dead and that was God's way of saying, you better pay attention to my son. If we can trust everything that Jesus said about life and death and life after death, man, this story matters. It works itself out practically in the way that we feel about ourselves and each other gives us a new framework for how we think about God, how we
we think about our past, how we think about our present, how we think about our future. The one thing it's not is inconsequential. If Christmas happened, if Easter happened, if Jesus is God revealed to us in the flesh, can we really ignore him? Can we really push him aside and make him second place, third place, fourth place, fifth place? The one thing it's not is inconsequential. So what does it mean for you? Are you living out of that faith and that confidence? Or is it just something you just haven't thought about or don't think about and you just kind of live life and whatever is, is. If it happened, if it's true, the one thing it's not is inconsequential. He's bigger than you think he is. He's better than you think he is. And he's closer right now than you think he is. Father, speak to our hearts. Remind us the beauty of the story that we are all a part of. A story that begins with a God who's eternal, transcendent and personal, who created all that is, and then one day showed up as a baby in Bethlehem to redeem all the world back to himself, to once and for all defeat sin, sorrow, and death. So Father, remind us of that. Help us to contemplate that and be reminded that the one thing it's not, it's not inconsequential. It matters and it matters a great deal. I pray it matters in my heart. I pray it matters in all of our hearts. I pray we take your word seriously, Jesus's mission seriously. In Jesus' name. And everybody said,